recording? Yes, we are. Fantastic. Let's go. Hi everyone, I'm Louisa. I'm an autistic academic at the University of Reading and I'm your podcast host for season three of Psychological. As you might already know, if you've listened to the previous two seasons with Sue, Psychological is a podcast that started during lockdown and it aims to make an evidence-based contribution to conversations about child and adolescent well-being, development and learning and neurodiversity. Today's Psychological is with Dr Joe Bathelt, a lecturer at Royal Holloway University of London and also my internal examiner for my Viva last year. Thank you. That was good. (laughs) And he's on the phone with me today to talk about one of his recent papers called More Than the Sum of Its Parts, Merging Network Psychometrics and Network Neuroscience with Application in Autism. So hi, Joe. How are you doing today? Hi, um, I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. That's good. I'm looking forward to hearing about the paper. So first off, I'm going to start by asking you what you found in your piece of research. What did you discover? Um, yeah, so it's a bit of a methodological paper, so it's a little bit um, of a story to unpack. So um, there are like two different strands that fed into this. And so one is network psychometrics. So that's a new approach of seeing mental phenomena and a lot of psychopathology as well. So the, the standard medical model um, sees uh, mental disorders as um, diseases or like disease entities or conditions. So you would have something like depression or autism, and there are um, indicators for that. So for depression, it would be like low mood or difficulty sleeping. And for autism, it would be something like social communication difficulties or repetitive and stereotype behaviors. Mm -hmm. So there are these entities that exist, and they have these indicators um, by which we can find them. So there are a number of problems with that. Um, so one is, does this entity exist if there are no indicators? So it's like, does a school of fish exist if there are no fish? Um, so the standard medical model would say, yes, they exist. So it's a little bit like, um, you know, if you have COVID, you could have COVID, but without having any symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't, yeah, it's problematic to see if this is um, the same for mental disorders. Um, so as an alternative network psychometrics turns the whole thing on its head and says, well, maybe we shouldn't be focusing on these latent entities, but we should be focusing on the symptoms themselves. So it sees mental disorders as um, networks of symptoms that interact with each other and that might um, reinforce each other. So in the example of autism spectrum disorder, you might have social communication difficulties which you then deal with by having narrow interests or engaging in stereotype behaviors that in turn might reinforce social difficulties again. So it's an interacting system and that might lead to constellation of symptoms that we would recognize as something as autism, but it might also not. And it might also lead to something else. And that might explain why there's a lot of overlap, for example, between pragmatic language difficulties and autism. So it's a sort of, throwing the disease thing out of the window and looking at interactions between the symptoms. So putting the network psychometrics to one side for a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, we have uh, neuroscience. And in uh, neuroscience in the last two decades, and there's also a similar shift from focusing on individual brain regions more to interactions between brain regions. So that's um, network neuroscience. So traditionally, you would say, Say if someone has um, damage to the hippocampus, like patient HM, we would then associate 
the hippocampus with the memory difficulties that um, were apparent after that damage. So we associate a certain function with a certain brain region. But in the network approach, we look more at the, the interactions between regions. So it could be regions that are very far apart, but then um, they talk to each other a, a lot or are organized in a certain way, and that's important for the function. So we have these two network approaches, psychometric and at the brain level. And now, of course, the question is, how can we bring these two together? Yeah. Um, which is a challenge because both are complex systems at different levels. Mm -hmm. um, so there have been various approaches. Problems often they're very difficult to interpret because it's a lot of things that interact um, and there are different levels, so we don't quite know how they correspond. So in this paper, um, I proposed one way of doing that, and that is by looking at the neural correlates of the behaviors okay. after accounting for other behaviors. So you get a sort of brain shadow. So you get the, the um, uh, neural correlate of your behavior. So for example, social communication difficulties, you find all the brain correlates of that. And then all the neural correlates for um, so, uh, for repetitive behaviors, for example. And then you can look at the correlation between them at the brain level and at the behavioral level and see if their associations are similar or different. Awesome. Wow. And it's, it's a really interesting follow on as well, actually, because there was... um. So Sue did an episode with Duncan all the way back in season one that I think, well, it was based on your ideas when you were doing your postdoc, wasn't it, about doing the network in terms of just the brain components. You're kind of following it up now by applying it to the network behaviour thing as well, which yes. over my head, but it sounds really awesome. That sounds so cool. So um, kind of know a little bit, I was going to ask what motivated you to do that, but it's pretty clear from the description you just gave there that there's not things that have popped those two things together so far. So that's what you were trying to do, which is awesome. Um, how exactly did you do your study then? So you kind of gone over, you've gone over a little bit about how you did it. Yeah, so um, we're massively helped in this by the availability of big data sets now. Um, yeah. So this was based on the Abide um, 1 and 2 data sets. So those are efforts to combine um, data on um, autistic adults from labs around the world. And they've been um, brought together and they're freely available online. Um, so this is fantastic because with that, you can look at hundreds of people. Um, unfortunately, well, yeah, because it is um, a sort of post hoc data collection, there are not a lot of behavioral measures that were common across all of the different studies. So in this case, um, I could only focus on the uh, ADIR, so that's the Autism Diagnostic Interview Revised, because that was common across a lot of them. But of course, that's also a little bit limited. So yep. ideally, I would have liked more detailed behavioral measures, but um, that, that's what's available, is what I, why I focused on that particular question. Mm -hmm. um, but the imaging data for that is very rich. So they all had um, resting state data, so where people just lie and scan and do nothing in particular, um, with relatively similar sequences. So these big data sharing efforts are really important, especially for developing new methods like that, because otherwise you don't get a lot of samples. Yeah, that's super interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess so, sometimes there's a bit of a, an issue with sharing data from potentially vulnerable groups because you don't know exactly what the study is going to be. Sometimes it worries me when there's a lot of data sharing because personally, as an autistic person, if I sign up for a study, not all autism research is created equal, is it? So not all of it yeah. is very nice. So I wouldn't necessarily want my data shared with people that were doing research that I didn't like. <laughs> so it's kind of hard getting that balance between making the data available enough that it could be used usefully and not making it available to everybody. <laughs> but it is really good that there is access to things that you can kind of develop those new methodologies, which is awesome. So I guess your study is kind of a sort of feasibility study of using that approach for future future research or future what do you think where where do you think it's going to go next or how do you think the method could be used in um, yeah yeah it's very much a demonstration that mm -hmm. this method is potentially useful mm -hmm. and well it depends on where people will take it so it yeah. does somewhat depend on larger samples and mm -hmm. um, yeah. so especially well, it depends on how many behavioral or brain measures you want to put into it. So the more, in this case, I used um, just three indicators from the ADIR. Yeah. Uh, if you want to use more, you would need a larger sample. Yeah. Um, but if you use only three, you could also do it with like this type of sample sizes that people usually have lying around in their labs. Um, so I hope that some people might start exploring with already collected data. Um, yeah. There's a, an interesting correspondence. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really awesome. And then, like, what do you think the kind of um, utility, I guess, is of looking at things in terms of symptoms as opposed to straightforward just diagnoses in terms of autism very specifically? Why is it important to look at it that way? Yeah, I think, well, of course, there's a lot of knowledge has been gained from um, the medical model and maybe describing things. And there's clinical utility as well because it's a very easy cut off you can say well this person meets the criteria so they should get extra support and so forth um but maybe in terms of understanding the mechanism it's a bit limited if we're just saying well it's a little bit circular saying this person has these difficulties because they have this disorder which we gave this label and yeah. um, so it's sort of it's very circular so if we instead focus on symptoms we can focus on the symptoms that actually cause people some difficulties so um, so what I heard from um, people who are affected by autism spectrum condition, they say that often it's sensory sensitivities that bother them the most and mm -hmm. actually other features are not that important. So you could focus on that and see if these sensory sensitivities affect other things. Um, so you could build a network for an individual person and say, whenever I have sensory hypersensitivity issues, I also withdraw and then over time, like my social connections might go down. So it's sort of you're building a causal story that you can then also intervene uh, useful interventions. So you could say, maybe we should focus on preventing um, sensory overload and then all these other consequences are also prevented. So it's yeah. sort of, it gives you a richer insight into what's driving actual real life difficulties. Yeah, that's, that is a really interesting way of looking at it actually. So then you're kind of, if someone does request help or some form of treatment, you can actually help them in a way that's going to help them the best by looking at it in that in that way and um kind of on a more personal note like I didn't realize that my most the things that affected me the most were sensory things and it wasn't until lockdown when I was at home all the time that I realized that when those things that kind of affected me were removed I found so many other things much easier 
like far easier because the difficult bits have been removed but I wouldn't have even realized that until I until lockdown basically <laughs> like it was good for me to get away from the situations that were stressful and like over, over, overload that was occurring regularly and affecting me but I didn't realize until then so it would be interesting to kind of be able to realize that earlier on in the treatment process perhaps and actually get help without having to go through a lockdown to realize because <laughs> that's not going to happen all the time is it to be honest so yeah it's a really interesting way of looking at things kind of a different way down the chain which is super interesting so I'm excited to hear kind of where you're well actually I'll ask you now where are you going next what are you going to plan to do next from this um, yeah so I'm a lot more on the um research side so uh, less applied things um, yeah I'm, I'm quite interested in the relationship between brain and behavior and how we can use brain measures to um, better understand what things might be more surface similar at the behavioral level or fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. um, so currently I'm really interested in, um, in loneliness so because that's a kind of subjective feeling mm -hmm. and uh, want to see how this subjective feeling might evolve over time and interact with brain development during adolescence if you're if you're missing out on um, opportunities for social interactions how does that affect your brain development as well as your personal development so this sort of interaction between uh, a formative period in development and um, an experience but also the reaction to the experience Nice. That's another thing that is really interesting in terms of how missing out on that interaction might affect people's development, because so many children lately have missed out on points like opportunities for interaction in a normal respect because of all the closures and things of schools. So having more ways to understand how those things affect people is really important. So, yeah, it's a really interesting new way of looking at how things affect people. But it sounds super interesting and I'm really excited to hear about where it goes next and kind of who uses the methods and how they use them. But it, it's awesome. It's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to come in with a question kind of more related to advice for people like I do at the end of every episode. So there are going to be students and early career researchers and other people listening into this podcast. So do you have any advice for them? Ooh. <laughs> That's a tough question. Yeah, there's, there's so there's so many things to say, aren't there? Advice-wise. Yeah, exactly. Well, it also depends very much on, um, well, who you're talking to. And yeah, I sometimes don't feel like I'm in a particularly good position to to give any advice. Um, I think if I talk to myself, uh, sort of ten years ago when I was starting out, I would say, yeah, don't stress too much um like just enjoy the process because with a lot of science it's like it's difficult to predict there are a lot of things that you can't control um so i think you need to enjoy the process hang in there and sort of work on your day-to-day -day and not worry too much about where things are going or what the outcomes might be because you're not in control of a lot of things so yeah um enjoy don't worry too much yeah, that is very good advice, definitely, to kind of like enjoy it, not stress out about what you're doing at the time. Yeah, just kind of take it as it comes. But yeah, that is very good advice. Um, thank you so much for coming and chatting to me. Anyway, it's been a really interesting talk and it's I'm excited to hear about where the research goes next. Um, 
for listeners as well if you just kind of want to hear more about joe and his work you can follow the links in the podcast description on buzzsprout or in your podcast app and also that previous episode with sue and duncan is really interesting if you want to hear a little bit more about the, the kind of network analysis in terms of the neuroscience data and how that started out um or how that was developed that that, that bit of research um and yeah join us again at the same time next week for another episode of psychological bye Thank you.